The older I get, the more I am convinced that pride is at the root of all sins. Every one of them. Pride is at the root of anger and envy and jealousy. Pride is at the root of a critical spirit. Pride is at the root of fear and lying. Pride is at the root of loneliness and self-pity. Pride is the very foundation of self-loathing and lack of a healthy self-image. I am convinced that pride is lurking in the dark, is the root of all sins. In fact, pride is the one sin that makes us self-conscious all the time. In fact, it is pride, is the one sin that is forever asking the question, how do others perceive me? Pride is the one sin that is forever preoccupied with the thought, what impression am I making on people and on others? Pride is the one sin that plagues you and plagues me with the curse of always wanting people's admiration and praise all the time. Encouragement is one thing, but praise is another because praise belongs only to the Lord. The truth is, today, Satan and his lie and deception has managed to succeed in telling us that pride is harmless. He has succeeded in convincing us that pride gets things done. He's managed to convince us that pride is the secret for success. He has managed to convince us that pride is what makes great people great. That pride is part of being human, and we get it everywhere we turn. While in reality, pride is deadly. Is deadly. Listen carefully, please. Why do I say this? Because pride blinds us to any feeling of indebtedness to God and to others. Pride blinds us from having gratitude in our hearts all all the time to God and to others. And pride will, listen carefully, pride will ultimately separate us from God and from others. In fact, pride devastates a person's emotional health. Pride ultimately can kill the body. And today I want to tell you about the ultimate cure for pride. You say, there is a cure? Yes, there is a cure. You see, the beginning of that process of cure is when you came to God, if you ever came to God, in confession that you cannot save yourself, that you are helpless, that you can never get to heaven without accepting what Jesus did on the cross for you, and then you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the beginning of the process of cure and healing for pride. But then it has to happen on a daily basis. Daily you do the same thing over and over again through praise and adoration. That's the cure for pride. You say, 
I made my profession of faith when I was a young man or a young woman, and I died to pride when I was saved. Well, yes and no. (laughs) The Bible uses a Greek tense in the Greek New Testament. I want you to listen very carefully. I'm going to tell you because heresies have arisen through the years from that misunderstanding of the language of the Bible. The Greek tense is called the aorist tense. And the aorist tense means this. Yes, you died to self when you were saved. But then you die to self every single day. Yes, you have been crucified with Christ the day you were saved. But then you crucify the flesh of pride every single day. But you see, if I don't do that, then whatever confession of faith I made, I didn't really mean. I remember one time I was with a very prominent politician on the same platform. And I gave the major address. He ended up kind of giving something at the end. You know, look, I'm a good guy type speech. And he said, I made my profession of faith at the age of nine, and, and that was it. Well, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Look how he votes. Look how he lives. I, anybody can say, well, I made a profession of faith. I'm a good guy. Kind of, you know, vote for me. <laughs> now, salvation is the first step. The day you said yes to Jesus, it was the beginning, not the end of a process. It is the beginning of a Christ-like process. It is the beginning of sanctification process. And for sanctification, while salvation is free gift of God, sanctification is a cooperation between you and the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, you have to be willing to let the Spirit of God work in your life on a daily basis. Don't miss this. Because if you miss this, let me tell you something. Sooner or later, you will become proud of your salvation. I know people who are proud of their salvation. And listen, that is the enemy's trap. In fact, that reminded me of a young couple who were dating. And uh, the girl looked at the guy and she said, "Uh, the man I marry, uh, well, he must be brave as a lion, uh, but not forward. He must be handsome as Apollo, but not conceited. He must be wise as Solomon, but meek as a lamb. He must be gentle and respectful of every woman, but loves only me. And the guy looked at her and he said, how lucky we have met. (laughs) In fact, I want to tell you, pride is what keeps people from genuinely confessing to the Lord. It really does. I read the other day about a priest who was sitting in a confessional box and he was listening to somebody confessing. And after he listened a while, he said, son, you're not confessing, you're bragging. (laughs) There are some people even take pride in their heritage, which they have nothing to do with. I mean, there's nothing they have. They're just born in, but they brag about their heritage or who they are. I read about the British lady who was at a party, 
And she courted another poor lady in that party, and she started telling her about how deep the roots of her family were, how ancient her family were. And she started bragging and bragging and bragging. She said, in fact, my family roots go all the way back to King James. And then, of course, the next thing, which was expected, you know, she turned to this poor lady and said, uh, this one who's been the recipient of this dribble all this time, and she said, uh, how old is your family, dear? And the lady said, I don't really know. Our family records were lost at the flood. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) In fact, the Bible is full of examples of how pride devastates and destroys. All the way from King Nebuchadnezzar, all the way to King Uzziah, how pride destroys and how pride devastates. But today I want to tell you about an example of pride that I think all of us can identify with, without exception. We all can identify with it. I want to give you the background first. King David of Israel had just been sworn in as commander-in-chief of the nation of Israel. And the first executive order that he has issued was to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. You say, where was it? Well, you see, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament represented the presence of God in the midst of His people. The Philistines thought, man, if we can take the Ark of the Covenant to our land, we'll get God's Yahweh's power. (laughs) Just like so many people today. You know, they don't believe a thing. Well, they hear about Jesus and His power. They say, hey, we add Him to the list of our gods. It's okay. We're not very choosy. Just add Jesus. And that's what they would do. But what happened? Their temple collapsed, and their gods caved in before the ark of God. I won't get into the details, but David insisted that the ark of the covenant comes back to Jerusalem because it represented to him the presence of Yahweh in the midst of his people. First Chronicles chapter 15 tells us that when they brought the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem, David appointed musicians. He appointed singers, and he had planned a praise the Lord party that ended all parties. It was a magnificent thing. It was the place to be at that time, (laughs) is where the Ark of the Covenant has arrived in Jerusalem. And in his exuberance, in his excitement, in his joy, in him being overwhelmed with God's blessings, King David did the unthinkable. Well, that was the unthinkable as far as his wife, Michael, was concerned. Now, by the way, they did not name me after her. (laughs) Just make that clear. Spelled differently. Now, I want to remind you who Michael is. Some of you may not have that biblical background under your belt. She was the daughter of miserable King Saul, the one who was immediately before David. She inherited all of her daddy's pride. She inherited all of her daddy's false dignity. She inherited all of her daddy's false self-image. She was indignant because David did the unthinkable. What was the unthinkable as far as Queen Michael was concerned? Well, David in his exuberance and in his excitement, he took off his royal robe, and he began to dance before the Lord. That's the unthinkable as far as she was concerned. 
Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I want you to look particularly verse 14. Verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. Here are the words. David danced before the Lord with all his might. What does that mean? Well, it means that he praised the Lord and he could not care less who thought what of him. (laughs) That's what it means. It means that he was so overwhelmed with joy of the presence of God that he acted as if there were nobody in the room. That he was so overwhelmed with the goodness of God and the blessing of God over him that he, the singer, could not find words to use, words to sing. So he danced before the Lord. He stripped himself of his royal robe. He stripped himself of his royal dignity. All in the honor of his Lord. All in praise of his Lord. All in adoration of his Lord. Well, where was Queen Michael during this time of praise and celebration? (laughs) Well, she was sitting on her royal blessed assurance... Not in the worship service. But she was looking through the window. (laughs) Her royal window. She was looking down. You know, I want to give you a rule of thumb. That's a use of rule. Those who do nothing always criticize those who are doing something. And that's what she was doing here. Queen Michael looks down from the window and sees what's going on down in the plaza. She sees what the king was doing, and she becomes livid. I mean, all she can say to herself, well, you just wait till you get home. Ooh, scary. Wait till I get hold of him. Wait till I get my hands on him. Now, ladies, can I tell you something in love? My kids always say, be careful when dad says, I'll tell you something in love. (laughs) Don't try to be a prophet to your husband and tell him, thus says the Lord. (laughs) Don't let your husband dread your sermons. Don't make your husband dread coming home. Don't wait for him until he comes home in order to let him have it. Please hear me right. I, I, listen, I know you love me, and I know that you'll understand what I'm trying to tell you. It's from the depth of my heart. I believe with all my heart that it is within your power to make him feel that he can't wait to come home. <laughs> it's within your power to make your home a haven. It is you have the power to make your husband break the speed limit because he can't wait to come home. You really can How? By not being a prophet and telling him, thus says the Lord. Leave that to me. All right? (laughs) I'll do a better job. (laughs) But be a priest to your husband. Be a priest. Minister to his needs. Give him a word of encouragement. Tell him how much you thank the Lord for him. Man, tell him that you have been praying for him. That you have, have you just asking God in some way to bless him. My Lord, if you do that, let me promise you'll have heaven on earth. 
Well, Queen Michael was just waiting for King David to come home. I mean, she was waiting with both barrels of both guns loaded. Bam, 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 bam. Let me just stop long enough to tell you. I want to tell you about Satan's lie regarding self-image. I hope you're listening carefully. Because our society at large, and the churches particularly, are thoroughly confused about this whole concept of self-image. It's confused right here in the Old Testament. We see it in the wife of the great king. Perhaps the most persuasive lie that Satan has made it so easy for us to believe is the lie that says that self-image is all important. The lie that is attaching pride to self-image. I want to tell you a couple of things. I want to explain to you a couple of things. There is a world of difference between healthy self-image and a sick one. The world of difference. I want to explain that to you. I'm not going to just make a statement and run off. Because it's very important. Because most often, Satan, if not all the time, sells us on the sick one. He sells us on buying into the sick self-image. So what is the healthy self-image? Here's the healthy self-image. I know by nature that I am a sinner and deserving the wrath of God. I know that. I believe that with every ounce of my being. I know that by nature I am a nobody. I know that. But then I know that the king of glory adopted me and gave me his last name. And he made me member of the royal family. And then he gave me authority to be his representative, to be his ambassador in the world. Now I want to tell you something. This is all the healthy self-image I want. That's all the healthy self-image I need. This is all the dignity that I'm looking for. What about the sick self-image? Listen carefully. The sick self-image says, I am somebody. And I'm not trying to take off anybody. (laughs) Here's a sick self-image that says, I might have grown poor, but I'll never remember my roots. Sick self-image. I might feel terrible about myself on the inside, but I'll never let anyone see the real me. That's a sick self-image. I'm going to project an image that makes people sit up and take notice of me. That's a sick self-image. I'm going to behave in such a way that everybody knows that I am cut above. That's a sick self-image. And I believe with all my heart, with every ounce of my being, that today God can heal your sick self-image and replace it with a healthy one. But it all has to begin with honesty. It all has to begin with reaching into your face and pulling off that mask that you have been wearing. It all has to begin with true confession. That's where it all begins. Now listen to the cynicism in Queen Michael's voice. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. Can you imagine her standing, you know, arms folded, 
Uh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants. As just any old vulgar fellow would do. He can imagine. I sometimes try to imagine in my head, you know, probably poor old David. I mean, she probably said to him, she says, you grew up as a shepherd boy, but I grew up in the king's palace. Either she has forgotten or did not know that her daddy was a donkey keeper and a lousy one at that <laughs> before God called him and made him a king. You see? She probably said to him, said, your family, they're a bunch of yahoos. But I know what protocol is. She probably said to him, said, you know, you did not know class until you met me. Poor thing. (laughs) You see, pride prevented her from participating in praise and worship. Pride kept her from enjoying the blessings that can only come from a praising heart, from the praising life. And now she wanted to impose her misery on King David. David's response was just the opposite. He said, protocol my foot. Well, that's a rough translation, but you really get the meaning. (laughs) Protocol was the last thing on his mind was the last of his concern. Yahweh's ownership of him is all that mattered to David. Praising God and not man was David's life goal. Honoring the Lord God above all else was the foremost in his mind. And he couldn't care less about protocol. Let me ask you this. How many people do you know who are only concerned about appearances. Are you a person who's consumed with appearances? It is absolutely amazing to me. Now, since I already started, you might might as well let me finish, and so you can forgive me wholesale, you know. It is absolutely amazing to me. It is mind-boggling to me that people in the sports arena can shout until they're hoarse, and when they come in the presence of God, O oh, mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> mighty what? <laughs> it is absolutely mind-boggling to me. It's, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to see people absolutely make fools of themselves in the stadiums when it comes to praising God. Ooh, can't even move our lips. (laughs) But pride is not only, it's not the only sin that can kill a praising life, but an untrue heart can squelch both the desire and the ability to develop a life of praise. You say, what do you mean by untrue heart? An untrue heart is a heart that is insincere, a heart that is hypocritical, a heart 
that is filled with doubt. No wonder the writer of the Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 said, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. There are some people who try to honor God with their lips only, but their hearts are full of anger and bitterness and envy and hatred jealousy, and lust, and the rest of it. They may be able to mouth the words, but that's all they can do. I want you to listen carefully. To develop the life of praise, you cannot do it alone. Let me tell you now, you cannot do it alone. You cannot do it in your own strength. You cannot do it. All you need to do is to surrender your intellect Surrender your feelings. Surrender your will. And then you're going to find that as soon as you do that, God will empower you to develop a life of praise. Just give me a practical way to understand this. I will. <laughs> I promise you. I want to illustrate it. When God said to Abraham, Abraham... Sacrifice your son Isaac. What is God asking Abraham? He's asking him to surrender the object of his love. He's asking him to surrender the object of his joy. He's asking him to surrender the object of his affection. He's asking him to surrender the object of his life. Let me ask you this. Did God want him to sacrifice Isaac? No. Did God let him sacrifice Isaac? No. Did God need Isaac? No. God did not need any of this. God wanted to be sure that Abraham was willing to surrender everything to him. And praise is a sacrifice because it costs us something. It costs us our pride. It costs us our self-made label. It costs us our self-serving plans. Because true praise requires that you lay everything that is near and dear before the Lord on the altar. True praise requires your willingness to say to God, Oh God, I yield to you my possessions. I yield to you my dreams. I yield to you my goals in life. I yield to you my relationships. Shall we pray? This is a sacred and holy moment because like a surgeon who prepares for the operation, God the Holy Spirit has now prepared you for the operation, but the operation has not taken place yet. The surgery has not happened. And God, the Holy Spirit, in this very sacred moment, wants to perform that surgery, if you permit Him. Would you say to Him, Lord, I know that pride has played havoc with me, and I may even have rationalized it. Lord, pride has kept me from being a praising 
Christian, and I might have even brought shame to your name because of that. Lord, I allow pride to withhold so many of the blessings that you have for me, and I'm sorry. Holy Spirit, I yield to you everything, everything that is near and dear, because you have already given me everything, and everything belongs to you anyway. I yield them to you. And thank you that you always answer the prayers of the brokenhearted. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.